Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Church. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob as well. All right, the Lord said stop prophesying. I could do that the rest of the service. Let's get into the Word. Exodus chapter 24. We are in a series, uh, The God of Restoration. And so last week I laid a foundation uh, of how God restores. And today uh, I had one message uh, all typed out, all prepared, ready to go. Um, and the Lord said, I'm still talking about restoration, but I want to take you in a little bit of a different direction. So uh, I was here till one in the morning last night, uh, just reading and going, wow, God, you're good. All right, Exodus 24. Uh, we're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to jump down to verse 9. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Jump down to verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But the elders, to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's alive, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And I thank you, Father, that when you send forth your word, it accomplishes what you send it to do, and it does not return void. And I thank you, Father, that you are moving in this house this morning. I thank you, Father, for the anointing that makes preaching easy, that I might communicate your word to your people in due season, and that, Father, when I reach my hands out and pull them back, it wouldn't be my handprint that's left, it'd be yours. There'd be evidence, Father, that you're in this place. Father, I thank you right now that the anointing breaks every yoke of bondage. And I thank you, Father, that today you would set people free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before I jump into the message this morning, I just remind you, uh, today is Next Steps. If you're not a part of this house and you're saying, I want to be part of this church, I want to find out what it takes to, to call this place home, join us for lunch afterwards. Uh, I know that Wanda has been cooking up a storm, and so it's going to be really, really good. Uh, so stay, find out uh, what, what is happening around here, our core values. That's right after service. All right. We've just read Exodus 24. You know, I would have loved to have been there at that moment? Could you imagine? Here are 74 people taken into the presence of God, and it says they see God. They're in this place on the mountain, and they see God. With their own eyes, they see God. And He is indescribable except for His feet. 
It describes this pavement of sapphire, so clear, so blue. I mean, just picture it with me for a moment. And they begin to experience supernatural occurrences. There's something happening. And then in verse 11, it says it again. It says it again in verse 11. They see God. They see God. And then it goes on to say that they sat and ate and drank with God. Here they are on the mountain that they actually see God and they entered such a state of reality that would be unprecedented for generations to come. That here these 74 are up on the mountain having lunch with God and it was like the Garden of Eden all over again. This hadn't happened before. There hadn't been a moment where so many had been in the presence of God, eating and drinking with God, fellowshipping with God. And it has to be, in my opinion, one of the most remarkable moments recorded in Scripture. This group of people seeing God, eating and drinking with God. I I cannot comprehend what it must have been like for them in that moment. So incredible to be in the very presence of God, eating and drinking. And surely, I want to say to you this morning, that I believe it exposes the heart of God to us. That it was really the intent of God to have such a closeness, such an intimacy with His people. And what a privilege for those that day But as it is so often that God will give us a glimpse, an initial experience of spiritual realities, and it seems from that day on we play catch-up for the rest of our lives. How many of you have ever had one of those experiences with God that you can point back to in your life and you can go, I'm trying to get back to that. I want to get back to that place where it seemed like I had unbridled fellowship. With God, where, where the presence of God was so thick around my life, where, you know, when I was six years old, I had a face-to-face visitation from Jesus. And my whole life, I've longed to see Him that way again. I've had some glimpses, I've had some moments, but nothing's been like that initial encounter. And I think for so many of us, we are longing to get back to something. We're longing to get back to something, but... I want to I establish something this morning, that God's heart has always been and will always be for us to walk in unbridled fellowship with Him. To have such experiences, such remarkable encounters, that God gave that nation at that moment the supernatural capacity to actually see the glory of God. The leaders in particular now have this signpost of what it would be to be in the presence of God. Those elders could point back to it. But here is the problem. That just because of such a great supernatural experience does not mean that we become impervious to losing our passion. And I think it could be true for so many. We've had great encounters, but at some point along the way, we lost the passion. At some point along the way, there became a disconnect. And in Exodus 32, we read just that. In verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The same leaders who 40 days earlier had ate and drank with God, had experienced the glory of God, were now worshiping and thrust headlong into idolatry. 40 days is all that separated them from the glory of God on a mountain to a graven image on the ground. They had quickly... And why does that happen? Well, the first thing it says is that Moses delayed. And how many of us have dealt with delays in our life? It seems like we're believing God for something and there's delay after delay after delay. And the gap between the promise of God and the fulfillment of the promise always seems long. And in those times, the heart will struggle with unmet expectations, broken promises, disappointment in relationships. What happens in delays is that pressure builds up and temptations arise. King Saul was told to wait, but the pressure of the enemy and the pressure of his general builds up, and prematurely he brings a sacrifice, and Samuel arrives at the last moment, but it was too late for Saul. He loses the anointing to be king. Discouragement, fear, doubt, uncertainty of the future can all rob us of the blessing God always has ahead of us. For us, because I want to say to you this morning, there is always greater glory. There is always a greater encounter. There is always a greater reality in God. And there is a warning here the delays you experience in your life are simply an opportunity to test your heart. The delays, I'm going to say that again, the delays you experience in your life are simply an opportunity to test your heart. But the truth is we're always in a rush for something greater to happen and miss the fact that the delay is an opportunity to prove our steadfastness and endurance. I remember one time I was traveling home. I believe it was from Bozeman, Montana, and I was trying to get back to Texas. And it No, I apologize. I was flying from California to Texas, and it was delay after delay after delay after delay after delay after delay. I got to the Fresno airport. At 4 o'clock in the morning, my flight was at 5.30. I walk in. I check in. I, have a, I was flying standby, so that's always an adventure. I check in. Plenty of seats open. Plenty of seats. And then they say there's a mechanical to San Francisco. Oh, great. 30, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30, 10.30, 11.30, 12.30, 1.30. They finally say, okay, we got another plane. We can make to San Francisco. Now, I'd already missed my connecting flight to Houston. That was long gone. The next connecting flight to Houston wasn't until 10 o'clock that night. It was a red eye. And I'm thinking, God, 
And because of all the delays, that flight was oversold. But here's what happened. I'm sitting in the airport and I'm rebuking delay. I bind the spirit of delay. I command the enemy to loose his hold over this flight. You know, I'm binding, loosing, rebuking, calling down, praying up, all the stuff. And finally, I got a little wise. Okay, God, what's this about? And this is what he said to me, and I was really irritated, to be honest. He said, you'll know when you get on the plane. (laughs) Well, when is that ever going to (laughs) happen? I finally get on the plane. And there's this little Greek woman sitting next to me, doesn't speak a lick of English. And I'm going, and she's crying. And she had to have been, I mean, she looked like she was 150. I mean, so I don't know how old she really was, but I mean, she, she knew Moses. Like, and she's sitting there and she's crying. And the flight attendant's trying to ask her what's going on and she can't communicate. And all of a sudden, I begin to understand everything she's saying in Greek fully understanding. Now, I tried to talk back to her one working. I had interpretation. I did not have tongues. And so I pulled out my phone, and I got the little Google Translate out, and I start typing back, and I understand she's concerned that when we get to San Francisco, she won't have a wheelchair. That's what it was all about. She was so concerned that she wouldn't have a wheelchair. And then I found out she had been scheduled to be on another flight but got moved to this flight. And so God delayed my plane all those hours so that I could be at the right place at the right time to help a little Greek lady who knew Moses so that she would know that there was a wheelchair waiting for her in San Francisco. But in our delays, we want to rush. We want to rush because we've got plans and we have things. We're always in a rush. But this is what the word says. Though the vision tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Though the vision tarry, wait for it. Because it will come. It will not tarry. The dichotomy of living the spiritual life is though the vision tarry, it will not tarry. I'm sorry, like, God, I don't fully understand how this works. Though the vision tarry, it will not tarry. What does it say? Wait for it. Because in the waiting, it happens at the right time. It it really isn't tarrying because it's not in our time frame. But see, we're always in a rush to enter our ministry, to gain our leadership influence, to experience everything God has for us right now, to get the deal now, to get the new promotion now, to get everything we want now. And if it doesn't happen now, we scheme, we plan, we connive, we work our circumstances to gain the advantage. But faith, faith rests. It waits on God. It prays, it believes, it hopes, it declares the greatness and the goodness of God. Even in the face of delays, even in the face of the seemingly broken promise, the failed vision. However, I will say to you, the real and best and most genuine things in God do take time. Yet the tendency is wanting it all now. I want it now. You know, Burger King, have it your way. Like right now, the microwave generation, just put it in 30 seconds. I get all the blessings right now. 
the best food takes time. You know, after I had, had surgery and all of my insides rearranged, I can't eat microwaved food. There's something about it that makes me sick. Why? Because the nutrients have been sucked out of it. So you might get something that looks like what you were wanting. You might get something that might even smell remotely like what you were wanting. But at the end of the day, the nutrients have been removed from it and it's not as good as it would have been had it been cooked the way it needed to be cooked. But we want it now. So the tendency is what they did. Because once Moses was delayed, they said to Aaron, make us a God. The God we've been waiting for, we don't know when he's showing up. So make us something that looks like a God we're familiar with. Why did they make a cow? Because back in Egypt, that was their God. It was this calf looking thing. So they're going to make something that they can relate to. And so they say, make us a God. If we can't get it in our way and time, then we'll get it anyway. We will just shape God as we want him. And so we put the control of religious experience and expression into our own hands. We shape the church the way it best suits us. And the battle that is on in our lives right now in the process of restoration is do we want glory or do we want gratification? The power of God versus the comfortable religious lifestyle. To wait on God for His manifest presence or produce a lifestyle of religious experience that fits me. Now, the battle was simply this. Moses was in obedience and experienced glory. Come up the mountain. Rest. Yeah, we, we love the word rest, right? I mean, that, everything in our culture right now is take your mental health breaks. You need to have rest. You need to do all these things. And listen, that is valuable. You need to rest. But here's the reality is that rest according to religion is one day a week. Rest according to Jesus as He is our Sabbath rest. We can enter into the rest of God in Him. My rest and my security is in the person of Jesus, not one day a week. We want to shape the religion our way. We want to make it such that we have what we want. And the danger is to have church the way we find pleasing, but in the process bypass the greatest thing, which is the glory. Here they were making something they could relate to while the glory was up on the mountain. And if you jump back a few chapters, God had invited all of the children of Israel up the mountain to experience him. And they said to Moses, no, you go on our behalf. We're scared of that. And how often do we look at the promises that God has for us and we get afraid and we say, I'll stay on this side. God, you stay on that side. I'm going to stay comfortable here. I'm going to make something that looks like you while you stay over there. And so what what did they do? They substituted the glory for self-expression. All of our culture is shouting, express your truth, be your best self. There is one truth, and it is the truth of Jesus. You can't live your truth. You can only live the truth. We live in a culture that is so uh, uh, embattled in this identity war of they, them, he, she, this, that. I don't care. It is about the truth of the Word of God, the foundation of who He is. I don't need to know who I am because when I know who He is, He'll tell me who I am. My identity can only be found in Him. And so they made it look real religious. They tore off their gold rings. 
oh, we're going to sacrifice our wealth. We're, we're going we're to take these things that appear worldly. And it appeared as revival. What was happening looked like revival. We're going to sacrifice all of our stuff. We're going we're gonna to lay it at the altar. But what was, it? what was the altar? It was the altar of self-expression. It was the altar of idolatry. Recently, I was listening to, I, don't know, I think it was Russell Johnson, uh, Pacific Northwest, great, great preacher. And he said this, the church has become a subculture and not a counterculture. We have become like the culture we are in when really we were meant to be counter the current culture. And so the church takes on the culture, tolerates worldliness and compromise and reshapes Christianity in such a way as to make what once was sin somehow now is our way of being relevant, up to date and modern. I'm not talking about legalism, church. You know, I grew up in an expression where you had to have sleeves down to here, collars up to here. If you wore makeup as a woman, your name was Jezebel. Like that was, that was the expression of what I grew up in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about holiness. Where you become a whole in the presence of God. Where we deal with our stuff so that we become like Him. Holiness was never a list of do's. And don'ts, holiness was a person we behold. And when we behold, we become like him. And so in our culture, we've settled for worshiping the graven images because it's easier to do that. And then we can tell people, just do this. And it's okay if you do this. And it's okay if you do that. Because it looks good. See, we see it in the way of the clothes we wear, the language we use, the lifestyles we adopt. And the ultimate danger that was seen is found in 2 Timothy. This is what it says, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, Revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Do you notice here, it is not talking about a single sin issue that the church loves to make a big deal about. It's actually talking about the attitudes of the heart. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. I think, listen, I will preach the sanctity of life till I die. I celebrate what happened in the Supreme Court with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but I will say I have never seen such pride that scares me when the church thinks that we can change a nation through laws and not through the changing of hearts. I will celebrate laws that make it harder for babies to be killed in the womb. I will celebrate that. But I will not look at that as the answer to revival in this nation. It will never. We cannot legislate the morality of the heart. Someone who is intent on murder will still murder. And unless the church rises up to actually be the solution for the issues, we won't have revival. We can say, oh, Roe versus Raid has turned over. We will have revival in this nation. No. 
Absolutely not. That's not the solution. Listen, you can make gay marriage illegal again. It's not going to bring revival. You can try and legislate and legislate and legislate and legislate, but it is a matter of the heart. God's not coming back to rescue America. He's coming back to rescue the church. And I think as long as we make it about a nation and not about a people, we will always have it out of balance and we will always have it wrong. And that's what the children of Israel did. They made it about their nation and about worshiping a God that they could look like. A God in their own image. A God that they were familiar with. And so the children of Israel built a fatted calf in gold so that it could look like something that they were familiar with and they worshiped that rather than coming into an encounter with a living God. Romans 1, 22 and 23 says this, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Moses comes down the mountain. God says to him, hey, those people, they're yours. Later on, Moses comes back to God and says, actually, no, they're yours. You're the one that led them out. Remember, I didn't want to do this, but you said... That's a whole other message. Moses comes down from the mountain with two things. The ongoing experience of God and the demands of God to ensure the continuation of that glory. God had given them a glimpse of what could have been. And the challenge was to pay the cost for that ongoing spiritual reality. See, glory demands something of us. Glory demands obedience. It demands a development of intimacy which demands prayer which demands the word of God, which demands worship, which demands fellowship. But self-styled religion allows expression as suits me with which I feel comfortable with and in. See, I hunger for glory, church. I hunger for glory. I, listen, if God said to me, Jacob, I don't want you to preach for six months. I just want you to work. I'd do it. I'd do it. If that was his instruction, I'd do it. Because it's not about what I feel comfortable in. It's not about my gift. It's not about me having a pulpit. It's not about any of that. It's about pursuing him. It's about the pursuit of glory. And the challenge is always to push for the glory and refuse the pressure to settle for less. This is what happened to me last night. As I was sitting here in the sanctuary, turning your Bible to Isaiah 42. I was sitting in the sanctuary, and whether this was audible or not, I I can't tell you. It sure felt audible. Isaiah 42, verse 5. I heard this in my spirit, or out loud. I don't know. I can't tell you. But it shook me to my core. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things to you. Before they spring forth, I proclaim to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. You need to hear something, TEC. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout, yes. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. I hear the Lord releasing a war cry on our behalf in this hour. I hear the Lord lifting up a shout from his holy mountain that he's about to lead a people into a new season. He's restoring people to a greater glory. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former house. Verse 14, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. There are things I will do and I will not leave them undone. Jump down to verse 22. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? I say the time has come to restore. The glory back to the church, the power back to the people of God, the ministries locked up in the hearts and lives of believers, the uncompromising outpourings of the Spirit of God. I say today God is moving to restore the glory of God to the church. I see it. I hear it. I observe the convictions coming out all over the world at this time. And I'm telling you today that if this is not a picture of the church in verse 22 and 23, that God says to you, where you've been robbed, where you've been snared, where you felt somehow you have to hide for fear of what might come out of your life, where you felt somehow imprisoned in your heart, God says to you today, I am the Lord of restoration. Some of you have thought this was your lot in life. You somehow believed that God had bypassed you or you gave up hope for the marriage to come right, for the finances to know relief, for the family to be made whole. The cry of the Lord to you is restoration. The Lord will raise up a cry and the cry is restoration. This is a season of change for the equipping church. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 43. But now... Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. I need to prophesy this to someone this morning. You're about to pass through the waters. You're about to transition. You're about to go to a new place. And you need to understand, yes, there's been fear about the new season. Yes, there's been fear about the transition, the unknown, the uncertainty. But this is the promise. When you pass through, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, some of you, your families are coming in. Your families are coming in. I will say, Jason is coming in, Dina. I will say to the north, give them up into the south. Do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I've created for my glory, who I'm formed and even whom I've made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together. So that the peoples may be assembled, who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things. Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses. You hear that? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? I'm starting to close. My vision and unfailing expectation in this hour, church, and I believe this is the expectation and vision of the Lord. Haggai 2.9 the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. For, for Anna and I, this is our eighth year in Bryan College Station. I don't believe that's insignificant. I was praying about it last night. I said, Lord, eight years have passed. Here are some of the promises. That's when he spoke to me, though the vision tarry. When we came to this city eight years ago, and I've shared, we, we came begrudgingly at first. God, this isn't where I'd want to live. This isn't glorious. This isn't what I've prayed for. But I'll tell you, June 29th, 2014, when I became pastor of this church, the Lord put a love for this city in my heart. It was supernatural. And I began to say, God, what is your vision for this city? What is it that you want to do in Bryan College Station? And that's when he gave us four keys. The first key was community. That we would be a church that would impact the community. The second was prayer. That we would be a people who would pray. 
not just our laundry list of things that we need, but we would join with the intercession of heaven and we would pray what God wanted to pray for this community. Number three, the prophetic. That we would be a healthy prophetic house that would train up people. And people say all the time, Pastor Jacob, what am I going to learn in this church? You're going to learn to hear God. If there's one thing that I can teach and I can impart in my life, it's that I've learned to hear the voice of the Lord. And if there's one thing everyone needs in their life, they need to know how to hear the voice of God for themselves. We live in a world of voices. We live in a world of noise. You need to hear God. And number four, revival. I I understand. I don't have the corner on God. The equipping church, we are not the answer to revival in the Brazos Valley. We would be foolish and prideful and arrogant to think that. But I do know we are a house of revival. And God has spoken it over this house many times that we will be part of the revival that will happen in Bryan College Station. We cannot afford in this hour, church, to settle for graven images. We cannot afford in this hour to create a God who looks like us and compromise the things that God has called us to. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former house. He's the God of restoration. And when He restores, He makes it better than it ever was before. I tell you, because of greater glory, there's greater miracles. There's greater freedom. There are greater blessings for those who would uncompromisingly hold to vision, retain the standard of faith toward God. Have I learned some lessons over the years? You better believe it. My wife can tell you, I'm not the same pastor I was when I started this place. When I came here eight years ago, I was, I was not even just wet behind the ears, I was underwater. But I tell you, the journey that God has taken us through, the deaths that I've had to die the pride that I had to deal with. You know, when people call you a prophet, you think something of yourself. And you have to die. And there's been a death that I've had to walk through. There's been a death that I've had to go through in dealing with and recognizing my own hurts, my own insecurities. So have I always done it right? No. Will I always do it right? No. But here's what I know that I know, that I know, that I know. God is doing something new here. We have crossed over into a new season. And there is coming swiftly, and I'm speaking prophetically. I believe I'm speaking the word of the Lord. There is coming quickly a day and an hour in this place where the presence of God will be so thick that people will walk in and get healed when no one touches them. Where promises will come to pass. Not because of Jacob Biswell, but because there's a collective people who have said yes to the glory. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You want greater glory? Let God deal with the junk. Get it out of the way. Climb the mountain. There, you know, there are some mountains that we try to rebuke. And God says, no, come up this mountain. This is a mountain I want you to come up. We just want the promised land. 
But you have to understand they couldn't get to the promised land until they got up the mountain. And because they wouldn't go up the mountain, they spent 40 years walking in a desert and a whole generation passed before they ever got to the promised land. This morning, church, I want to say to you, he's the God of restoration. Jump in the river with us. Let God carry you in this hour. Let God move. Amen. Will you stand this morning? If you're in this room this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. It's the greatest decision anyone could ever make is a choice to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. And I want to take this opportunity right now to give you the opportunity to make that decision this morning to follow Him. He wants to set you free. He wants to deliver you of the things that have held you bound. He wants to give you a life you could have never dreamed of. Does it mean that when we become a Christian, suddenly everything changes? No, not on the outside, but I can guarantee you on the inside, everything changes. We begin to live with a heavenly perspective. And so this morning, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, or maybe you're in this room this morning, you're saying, yeah, I prayed a prayer a long time ago, or I used to have a relationship with God, but that's long gone. And you want to restore that this morning and give you that opportunity as well. If that's you this morning, either of those categories, you want to follow Jesus or you want to restore that relationship with him, I want you to slip up your hand. And raising your hand, you're saying to me, I want to follow Jesus this morning with my whole life. You might be watching by live stream. In just a second, we're going to pray together. This prayer doesn't save you. Jesus is the one who saves. He's the only one that has power to save. But in surrendering your lordship, to Him, making Him Lord of your life, it'll transform you. So this morning, one more time, if that's you, I want you to slip up your hand. Otherwise, we're going to pray together. Let's pray, church. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Today, I surrender. I say yes to you. I say yes to the promises. I repent of my sin and I receive your grace in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingchurch.us.